Welcome to the First Century Youth Ministry Podcast. A podcast looking back into the Jewish roots of our faith. For the way forward in youth ministry discipleship. I'm Heather. And I'm Jonathan. And we are your co-hosts. This podcast is part of the Youth Cartel Podcast Network. Hey friends, it's Heather here. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Jonathan is going to be talking about the importance of some fun things tonight. But in light of that conversation that he's going to be having, I thought it would be fun to talk really briefly about a Facebook post I saw Jonathan put up on his page the other day that I just thought was awesomely, hilariously, so, like, whose kid is like that? Other than maybe Charles Spurgeon or John Wesley or, you know, I didn't even know. John Piper. I know, I'm not even sure. I, I, I get on Facebook and I read that your, I think, eight-year-old daughter or something like that. You, six. You would take six. Okay, your six-year-old six, daughter. Yeah. You, you've got five kids and you took them all on this little vacation. And you said they could bring any book they wanted. And your six-year-old brought, as she called it, the Holy Bible, right? And the I was Holy thinking Bible. Some, yeah. Yeah. But whose who's child chooses the Bible. I mean, that's awesome. My child would choose Daniel Tiger, the Paw Patrol. I mean, anything other yeah. than her, probably her Bible. And I just thought it was so funny because you took, I saw this picture you took of her and she's laying in the hotel bed reading the Bible. But you, you said she was like reading the footnotes and the commentary and everything. She was, yeah, she had started out because um, we had a, a pretty long trip and they had to read for at least two hours before they could get their tablets wow. and play games and stuff. Wow. And, and so she she made it through Genesis 7 or 8 or so. <laughs> and I was asking her and I was like, okay, so, you know, so we were talking about it for a little bit. And I was like, oh, so it was, it was a lot to read, right, before you before you got there. So that's why, you know, was it some difficult words or something that made it kind of difficult? And she was like, no, I read from here through here and started looking at it. And she's talking about reading the front matter, like... The, the, the translator's preface and wow. the introductory material and, and how they chose to translate God's name and why they did it that way and what the translation oh philosophy was. And like, <laughs> I don't know that you understood all of this, but she didn't just say, I don't know what this means and give up. She actually, sure. She actually read through it. So good for her. She's going to be throwing out some big theological words like in second grade this year. And her teacher's going to look at her and be like, hmm, I don't know what you mean, but I'm <laughs> intrigued. No, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I get a, another uh, theologian uh, in the family. Yeah, That'd be awesome. So maybe this episode, Jonathan should share all of his secrets on how on God's green earth, he got his six year old to pick the Bible and then read it for two straight hours in the car. But anyways, so um, I just thought that was funny. And um, so if y'all want to know how to be the kind of dad that gets your kid to read the Bible, just just ask Jonathan, he'll help you out. So, but friends, um, we've got a fun conversation that Jonathan's going to be leading us in today that I hope helps, uh, helps you become better at discipling, uh, young people. And if you have a family, maybe even your own family. Uh, so Jonathan, what do you got for us? Yeah. So, uh, today I wanted to talk about, um, a word that doesn't always sound too fun. Uh, and that is mm. obligation. Mm. Right. This is where we're kind of in the generation where people just want to shed obligation. Right. We sure. don't want people to have expectations of us. We don't want to be bogged down with responsibility and duty. Um, mm -hmm. 
but at the end of the day, we all have obligations. Um, mm. For those in ministry, you have obligations to those that you're shepherding, right? Whether sure. you're, you know, a senior pastor leading a congregation of a thousand people, or a youth pastor that has, you know, just six kids in your right. your youth group, you sure. know, you have obligations to them because of the the position that you're in in their life. Yeah. Uh, specifically have in mind to talk about is our obligations to our household or really to those that are in our care, right? Mm. So this could be parents to children. It's relevant there, but it could also be those in leadership. It could even be uh, employers to employees, right? Somebody else who you're charged with mentoring them, with training them, with kind of raising them up, whether that's in life or in in their particular position. Right. Um, So there's a couple biblical passages that I think are, are relevant here um, to, to mm-hmm. really drive at this point. Um, the first, as I already mentioned, you know, I mentioned Deuteronomy 6, and it's also from Deuteronomy 6, uh, and it's verses 6 and 7. And it says that these words which I command you today should be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, this is part of the Ve'ahavta, right? This is recited directly after the Shema. It's a piece of liturgy that's recited in Hebrew every day in Judaism. Don't they put that in the mezuzah that they put on the doorposts of the of a Jewish yep. home? Like that little box that they put? Uh, like Yeah, it's got a, a tiny little scroll. Yep, it's yeah. got a tiny little scroll rolled up inside. And then, yeah, it depends on if you're Ashkenazi or if you're Sephardi and what your tradition is, whether you tilt it towards the door or out from the door or even just straight up and down. Um, all mm. of mine are tilted towards the inside. But Interesting. It, hmm. at the end of the day, it's, it's just like most things in Judaism, it's it's an argument, rather, right? whether it should be this way or that way. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but funny. again, this, this is, it's, it's synagogue liturgy that is ancient times, mm. right? I mean, this is recited yeah. in the synagogues every day in the temple every day. I mean, these are the prayers that Jesus grew up with, right? Yeah. Um, when we see him gathering in the synagogues, it wasn't just, he went there to stand up and teach people and people just listened to him, right? Synagogue mm. was a part of daily life. You went in for prayers, you went in for any sort of life event when somebody had a child, when somebody yep. was dedicating their child, whether it was, you know, a male being circumcised or presenting a new daughter and announcing what their name would be, you know, any of these sorts of things, life events happened mm-hmm. in the synagogues, much similar to how we have funerals and weddings and baby showers at churches, Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it should be kind of the heart and soul of a community. Sure. Right. So, again, this 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 passage from Deuteronomy six is something that you'd recite every single day uh, right. in Judaism. In the first century, Jesus and the disciples. Again, this is this is tradition. This is you recite these passages every single day. Um, and then we also come to uh, the other passage uh, that I wanted to, to quote really quick that sounds like it's going to be completely unrelated, but we'll get there. Uh, is 1 Timothy 5.8, right? Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those Mm. of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, this this feels like a really weird place to put this in his letter, right? So if you go to 1 Timothy 5, the context here, it's about honoring those that are serving in the community. It's about Mm -hmm. caring for those that need assistance, right? He specifically Mm -hmm. calls out widows, because they represent a particular class of people, especially women, who needed and deserved assistance because society at large had le- had, had pretty much rejected them. Yeah. Right? In Greco-Roman society of the first century, if you were an adult woman, then you were already denied most parts of 
social life. You couldn't just own land and you couldn't just go to the market and sell things and set up shop and make money. And whatever. It was very difficult. You, you had to have status already. Yeah. And for sure. most women, that came about either because of your father or because of your husband. Right. right. And so if you were a widow, that means you lost the husband. And it also meant mm -hmm. that your father was no longer living because you couldn't even go back home there. So this class right. of, of people that Paul is talking about are those that are very vulnerable. Um, you'd think of those mm -hmm. that are, you know, kind of uh, government assistance level in today's society, right? The ones that would qualify for, for welfare and, and food stamps and sure. Section 8 housing, right? These, these social programs. Yeah. Um, so again, Paul gives these guidelines on when and how to provide this assistance in their culture. And sort of like the church's, the, the early church's benevolence ministry, right? Mm. Um, so then we get this weird sentence in verse 8 about if anyone does not care for their own, they're worse. They've denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Um, that's harsh, right? That's quite the mm -hmm. condemnation. I mean, the, this, this, you know, scathing indictment here. Um, but again, in the Greco-Roman world, a person's household was not just your spouse and your kids. Sure. Right? You typically had your elderly parents and or your in-laws that lived with you under your care. Any servants, mm -hmm. or in many people's cases, also their slaves. Um, and even extended family would all dwell mm -hmm. together. So you had the potential for a lot of dependence in that day without the tax write-off. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, you know, we, we, we learn... <laughs> Elsewhere in First Timothy that Paul often speaks primarily of the wealthy when he's addressing these <laughs> issues. Um, mm. For example, when he's talking about the way that women dress, the problem wasn't that they braided their hair. Like Paul doesn't actually say, don't braid your hair, it's bad. The point was, why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And what are you trying to achieve? Right? Because mm -hmm. in the culture at the time, the idea was, I want to emulate those high status Roman women that everyone looks to and is like, I wish I was them. Or oftentimes, I wish I had them right? Mm -hmm. In, in mm -hmm. their society. So that the concern was not even, and the concern wasn't with having wealth. It was with flaunting it, right? When sure. Paul talks about modesty in his letter, it's not about whether your sleeves are this long or this long or, or any of that. That wasn't the concern in Greco-Roman society when he wrote this letter. When he's talking about modesty, he's talking about those that have a lot of wealth and want everybody else to know that they have a lot of wealth, mm -hmm. right? Sure. So before we get off track. So how do, how do these, these passages from Deuteronomy 6 and 1 Timothy 5 relate, right? So sure. I would submit that the, the crux here is that they're both concerned with tending to and caring for those in your household, right? Mm -hmm. So in Deuteronomy 6, the concern and the explicit obligation right, is that parents are to teach their children the Torah. That's the goal here. Mm -hmm. You shall impress them upon your children. Uh, I saw a very interesting uh, note one time in a translation of the Septuagint of this that I was reading once, and it, it used the word indoctrinate in the translation um, because they say yeah, that the Greek there to too. impress mm -hmm. is literally to indoctrinate. Like so essentially, the idea being conveyed is not just tell your kids and remind them over and over and over again, but like really, really indoctrinate is such a bad word in our culture, I but know. enculturate them to it. Make them understand that this isn't just do as I say because I said so, but let it be part of the culture of how they're raised, their life, and how they grow up in the Word, right? Absolutely. So yeah. that's Deuteronomy 6. Um, and it, it, it's the responsibility of parents to train and raise up their children in learning what God expects of us. And then with 1 Timothy 5, we see how important it is to provide for the members of your household. And I would say it's implicit in Paul's words here that this includes not just feeding and clothing them, because you can starve people even though you give them food every day, sure. right? 
um, it's tending to their needs holistically, not just physically, yeah. but also spiritually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and one last verse, I think, that, that helps connect these things uh, is Proverbs 22.6. And this is very well known for parents. Um, I'm pretty sure just about everybody has heard or read this verse before, uh, even if you don't remember the reference to Proverbs 22. Um, but it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Right? Um, one of the fun, fun facts here on this passage is that the word uh, that's, that's typically rendered as train up, right, is chanoch. Um, this is the kind of the, the source or the root word for Hanukkah, right? Which mm. Hanukkah is the festival of dedication. It also relates to the name Enoch, right? Um, but you could almost say that to, to make it a little bit more of a wooden translation, if you will, it's not so much train up a child as much as it is dedicate or cause to become experienced, yeah. right? Yeah. So it makes the wording a bit awkward, but I think it, it kind of it adds some additional detail to how we should understand this verse, which is we shouldn't just be teaching or training children, but causing them to become experienced, right? It's not a passive Mm. role. It's not something that just happens as we go along throughout our lives. It's something that we're actively doing. Now, when we think of teaching, we typically think of a lecture. We think of a sermon. We think of someone Mm. standing behind a pulpit or in a classroom. They're speaking. Maybe you think of a parent kneeling down and explaining something to a child. Um, you might even think of an object lesson, right? But that isn't the sort of teaching and training that's simply expressed in Deuteronomy 6 or Proverbs 22. It's more active than that. It's more work than that. So mm. this first obligation here is caring for one's own household, right? Teaching, training, dedicating this next generation that's coming up to the way that they should go, right? Yeah. Typically in... Uh, messianic services there's a section of the service where you you bless and pray for all the children every sabbath Mm. right so you you bring them all up to the front and i've seen this in some other churches too um there's a methodist church down the road that does this um right before the sermon starts they dismiss the kids right and they actually bring them all up and the the reverend there prays for each child knows them by name right and prays for each child and speaks a blessing over them um before they're kind of dismissed to to their you know their sunday school um but one of the things that, that we always did in the congregation that I had led for a little while there was we would also not just pray for the children, but also the parents, right? Because it's mm. the parents that have the responsibility of training and dedicating these children. Um, yeah. But it goes beyond parents as well. Uh, it, obviously, it, it's directly applicable from parents to their own children, but it's also critically mm. important for those in ministry, especially youth ministry, because they're so often youth ministers are the primary source of theological education for teens and young adults. So many people only have a relationship with God because of their youth pastor. You know, Mm. I knew a number of kids when I was growing up that their parents had, I mean, they were just about as worldly as you could get. And the only reason that they even showed up at youth group was because the parents thought, well, it's a place that I can get rid of my kid for a couple hours in the middle of the week on Wednesday night. Right. Right. So the parents had nothing yeah. to do with it, but because yeah. of a dedicated youth minister, um, yeah. you know, these, these kids actually developed a relationship with the Lord. So, yeah. you know, again, we, we have to remember, especially as leaders, we have an obligation to yeah. tend to the needs of those in our household, whether it's physical or especially spiritual. You know, sometimes the only picture of Messiah that people will see mm. on the outside um, or, you know, even kids in youth group is us. Right. And it's yeah. kind of a sobering 
And honestly, scary thought, right? I mean, I drive through the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex every day, and traffic is awful almost constantly. Mm. Imagine if the only introduction to biblical faith that someone got was being cut off on I-35 by the guy with the what would Jesus do sticker, <laughs> right? But imagine how much yeah. of a destruction to your witness that is. Yeah. Um, but again, we, we yeah. have an obligation to our fellow man. And that's kind of what, what I'd like to, to lean to is more encouraging people mm-hmm. um, that are listening to continue to be that light, right? Yeah. And and one one final note um, that relates to this, especially from a youth pastor, was I had, I had a, a cousin passed away mm-hmm. a few years back that was a, uh, Baptist, a Baptist youth pastor mm-hmm. um, for years. And he was really laid back, really honest, really nice, caring, um, gentle uh, guy. And he used to say that he wasn't too worried about having the best and most perfect arguments, right? People would say, oh, well, what about this? And he'd say, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting thought. And he'd kind of dismiss it and kind of whatever. And and I asked him one time why he's not more argumentative with people, right? Because I was sure. a very fiery, argumentative teenager and, and young adult. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he would say, well, whatever I can talk you into, someone else can talk you out of. Right? He said, but I'm more concerned with showing these kids what a godly walk with their Lord looks like, because what they really need is not me to convince them of something. What they really need is a relationship with the Holy Spirit, because that's what will change them. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. And that really puts a, the icing on the cake. And that's something that God has been teaching me is the importance of really caring for the sheep. Is you know, We have to remove our desire to want to be somebody. We have to remove our desire to want to try to be somebody that we don't need to be for them. And we just have to be an open place where they can come and be and learn and grow without the fear of judgment, without the fear of feeling as though we actually don't matter to our youth leader, right? Like kids know genuine, authentic people. And and if they know that you genuinely authentically care about them, they're going to keep coming back, even though they might not agree with all your theology. But if you make your biggest point, your theology, and your biggest point, your image, and your biggest point, trying to grow this huge, big youth ministry and have all these big numbers, kids will smell that. They'll smell it quick. And and they'll probably stop coming unless they have a lot of friends. uh, And they'll find uh, something else to do. And so this has been a really grounding conversation for, I think, for youth ministry leaders to take a step back and say, hey, we know you work hard. We know you're doing your best. We know you love teens. And it's hard work. Ministry is really hard work. And your greatest, one of your greatest um, priorities is caring for your own soul and then caring for the souls of those whom you minister to. If you don't, if you had seven kids show up at youth group and you normally have 25, you're not a failure. If nobody signed up for the mission trip this year, you're not a failure. Did did you go and visit that kid when their grandparent died? Did you call them when they had something really great happen in their life? You know, think about those things and, and hang your hat on the, the little things that would create a place of um, acceptance and love for that child so that in 10 years, they don't look back on their youth ministry experience and say, what was my youth pastor's name? But they would say, yeah, my my youth pastor, they were awesome. They were always there for me. They knew how to love me. And they just cared about me. Because that that's going to be the kind of stuff that at the end of the day, 
that I think makes the biggest difference in the lives of kids. So Jonathan, this has been a really good conversation for us to think about where are we at in that um, reality. So friends, thanks again uh, for joining us for this conversation. And uh, as always, uh, we'd love to get to know you more. So shoot us a message at firstcenturyyouthministry at gmail.com and let us know what you like about the show or things you want to have us talk about on the show or how Jonathan got his six-year-old to read the Bible. Okay. All right. So let us know and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Bye.